What is a producer and what do producers and engineers really do? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. On today's show, we're talking production. And we start out by talking to Sylvia Massey about her new book, Recording Unhinged. Sylvia is a producer, engineer, and mixer who has over 25 gold and platinum records from her work with artists like Tool, System of a Down, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Tom Petty, and more. She's renowned in the industry for her unconventional techniques and unique ways of getting sounds. We also talk to Grammy-nominated producer and local Portland hero, Tucker Martin. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Sylvia Massey. Sylvia, welcome to The Future of What. Hello. Hello. (laughs) So I enjoyed your book so much. Oh my gosh, I love it. It is the funnest book. Well, thank you very much. I had fun writing it. I'll bet. Did you illustrate it yourself? Yes. I think most all the illustrations in the book were ones that I did and several photos too. But then I collected a lot of photos from other contributors that uh, gave me interviews for the book. So it's a combination of my own things and, and some other people brought in some things too. I didn't realize until right now that you did the illustrations because the illustrations are one of the greatest parts of the book. They're so perfect. I like the one in particular where you, it's called Coffee Logic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you equate a different kind of console with a different kind of fancy coffee maker <laughs> from the fanciest to the least fancy. Anyone who spends time in the recording studio realizes how important coffee is to the <laughs> process of recording. I thought it was a good comparison. Yeah, it's pretty terrific. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. let me back up and start at the beginning. So tell us how you came to write this terrific book, Recording Unhinged. Back when I started recording, I'd always try to do something really special with any session I was involved in. Just try to make it memorable in some way because it's more than just the music. It's, It's the experience. And If you're in the studio and there's an emotion happening, it it translates into the recording. So right away when I started doing work with Tool, I uh, suggested that we buy some pianos and see what kind of crazy noises we could make with the pianos. I really wanted to drop it off of, drop a piano off the top of a building or (laughs) something like that, but no one would go for that. I I called some crane companies and they weren't (laughs) going to help me do that. So we did set up the, a couple of old clunker uprights in the back of Grandmaster Studios. And we took some sledgehammers and a shotgun and shot them full of holes and kind of dismantled them there and recorded the whole thing. And it was fantastic. (laughs) So that kind of started me out with this. And so every time I do a recording now, I try to do something unconventional and it's been my signature. So between throwing guitars off of cliffs or (laughs) building strange microphones or, uh, you know, doing unusual things in the studio, that's, uh, that's what's what the book is about is really thinking outside the box and trying things new. And I think it's very important now because there's so much of this digital recording where everything is kind of thought out for you. 
that I'm challenging people to think for themselves and try to invent new sounds and to put the fun back into the recording process. And that's what the book is about. Well, the book is really great because it has a lot of appeal for people, obviously, who are you know, tape operators. We just did an interview with Larry Crane for the 20th anniversary of Tape Op Magazine. So that's why I'm, I'm using my technical jargon there. Oh, great. <laughs> but it's also got, I think, a lot of appeal for people who are not as totally versed in the universe of it because you do a good job of explaining, you know, really what it is that engineers do in the studio. And then you've got these great chapters that have to do with like each of the different instruments. So you've got a chapter on vocals, a chapter on bass, a chapter on drums. I'm a drummer. So of course the drumming chapter was for me the most fascinating. And I, I'm sure other people would maybe not feel the same way about, you know, how do you mic drums? Like what, what if you put them on the ceiling? And what if you do this with the heads? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I like that part. But it's, you know, I, I think it's got a lot of appeal for people who are just interested in how music is made. I think just the clear fascination that engineers have with sounds and how sounds can be gotten. Are, it's just, I thought, I love that part of it. I thought it was really fascinating. Well, it's interesting because when you try to write a book about sound, you know, well, how do you really describe sound? That's where these illustrations came in, too, because, you know, how do you describe miking a chicken or, you know, <laughs> so I figured it was important to create illustrations that kind of demonstrate some of these ideas and maybe throw some imagination in there and a bit of fantasy in there at the same time to uh, just inspire people to create sound. So yeah, it's also full of stories from several people about known artists so that anyone who's not a studio rat like we are would be able to just kind of open up a page in the book and find something interesting, a story about David Bowie or a story about the band of horses or any, you know, new or older classic legacy artist or, you know, it goes all over the place. And it was written to be entertaining in a way where you don't have to absorb it all at one time, but you can go page by page and kind of look at this page and walk away with it and be inspired to do something new with just a peek, you know. So hopefully people will like this book and keep it around and keep it in the studio and every once in a while just to open a page and, and go, okay, if they can do that, well, I'm going to try this. <laughs> Absolutely. And I love how it's laid out, the layout, just like you said, you know, you've got these different stories from different engineers and producers around the country and the world. And they're usually in little boxes that sort of stand out. And that's just like a little story that you can dive into. And the people that you have in here are fascinating people. I mean, obviously very timely. You spoke to Susan Rogers about her work with Prince. Yeah. And there's several stories from her working with Prince. And that was timely, but also just fascinating because he was such a Renaissance man in terms of doing so much of stuff himself. Yes. You know, he not only played instruments, but he was, you know, very much into engineering too. Yeah, I got to work with Prince myself. And so the Susan Rogers stories really hit home for me because I experienced what she experienced. However, she was there for all the big early hits of Prince and she was intimate in the studio for years with him. And 
had some very exciting moments that she described in the book and really creative stuff. He, he was not afraid of doing things to the equipment that most people would say, Oh, you can't do that. You know? So Prince would really turn things up to uh, the point where it was distorting and there was a sound with that. And if you listen to, to a lot of his early recordings in some of his biggest hits, they have this kind of in your face excitement, kind of bristly, you know, kind of furry sound. And that's from him just pushing the volume to a point where it saturated the tape and created this special sound. So yeah, Prince was, an innovator in so many ways, just the way that he would produce. I think he was uh, an, an amazing producer because he would have several rooms working at the same time and he would bounce from room to room and be writing keyboard lines in one room and then he'd bounce over to the next room. He'd do vocals in that room and then he'd go over to the next room and he would, you know, be dissecting percussion parts. It was, it, he had a whole production line going for years in several studios and I got to be a part of that. That was very exciting to see and was really instrumental in, in how I approach production as I got into production deeper. One of my favorite segments in the book is a segment you call creepy old gear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. And I You know, I was in a band and we did some recording, but we only made two records. So I didn't get as much time in studios as I would have liked to with my own band. But I've over the years working at a record label, I've I've been in studios a lot. And I feel like you always see that one or two pieces of just weird looking old gear in somebody's recording studio. And you're always like, where in the heck did they find that like moldy looking crazy thing with like all these weird, you know, meters and switches and crap. But it's usually the thing that they love the very most, right? Like it's the engineer's prized possession. Of course. (laughs) And there's always a story associated with those old pieces of gear too. And that's the, the most fun is to listen to people talk about their gear. If you get a chance to go into a studio and you see one of those things, just ask the person who owns the studio, what is the story behind that? And I'm sure that person will be just it's so joyful in their description of how they went into someone's garage and convinced them to sell it to them for, you know, a hundred dollars and what it's really worth and in its age and it's who built it and what it does. It's just a, it's interesting. It's the same with people with their instruments. I'm sure that you have drum kits that there's a or a snare drum that oh my god this is the one that I use on stage because it's you know so and so played it back in 1982 and blah 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 you know yeah <laughs> there's so many great stories about equipment and instruments and those those kind of stories kind of embed themselves into the fabric of the instrument into the wiring of the gear you know it really it, it seeps in and it, and you can draw it out when you use it again and again. It's really a special thing that we do with music and with recording. It is funny how that that is absolutely true. We had Kurt Cobain's old PA system because my husband was yeah. friends with him and they used to live in Olympia and they were next door neighbors. And when Kurt left to go on tour for uh, Nevermind, he never came back. 
and all of his stuff that was in his house was thrown out on the street oh my God. because he literally went on tour and never, ever came back. Oh. And so my husband got his PA, which we kept for years and years, even though it was all the, you know, the fabric on the front was all ripped because Kurt had put his guitar through it so many times. Yeah, yeah. And it sounded like crap, but we were like, no, we're never going to give this up. <laughs> this is, you know, it's a piece that of history. That is fantastic. <laughs> And if and if you didn't know the story, it would just be another kind of crappy old PA. But right. <laughs> the, it has an entirely different meaning when you know that story behind it. That's exactly. fantastic. I wish that I would have had you uh, involved in the making of the book because that would have been a, a great addition to the book. It would have if we had a photo. Maybe maybe a recording unhinged. Number two. The exactly. Next book. <laughs> the, the next sequel. One. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Great. So the other thing I love about this book is you've got Linda Perry in there. You've got several female producers and engineers yeah. just in the book as a matter of course, you know, as it should be. But I was I found myself thinking, you know, because even though I try not to I try not to to draw attention to women in, in music as a thing because I feel like we should just be in music and that should just be how it is and instead of making you. a big production out of it all the time. Yeah. But one thing I thought was interesting was, you know, just like you were talking about just now with finding old gear and, you know, going, you know, seeing something on Craigslist and being like, oh my God, this person has a whatever. Yeah. And then like traveling to, you know, wherever to try to find this stuff. And I was like, you know, when women do that for you know, old pieces of musical equipment and gear, it's odd. But if women were doing that for shoes, everybody would be like, oh, that's completely normal. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> so it's of actually, course. it's just yeah. ridiculous, right? It's like, it's, you know, people do yeah. this every day, this exact same type of stuff. It's just when it's musical gear, people get excited because they're like, oh, you're a woman, <laughs> you're interested in, you know, crappy old Ampeg whatever's. You know, it's so funny because I keep forgetting that I'm a girl and I should behave <laughs> a certain way. <laughs> Don't we all, right? I keep forgetting that yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, yesterday I had the funnest time. I'm involved with a company called Waves in doing plug-in software for Pro Tools. And we're designing a package that will be my signature series. Wow. I'm sure I'm the first girl that will have her own signature series of plugins, but I thought, well, I'm going to do it a bit different because I, I am the unhinged one. So we gathered together. I went to the store and I bought a bunch of fruit and vegetables and some hot dogs. And I thought, well, what about using potatoes as filters, you know, audio filters, uh, or what's the difference between a potato filter and say a banana filter or a hot dog filter. So we, <laughs> we, uh, we set up, I, I went and soldered out up some electrodes and uh, patch cables and we put them through the patch bay and actually measured what the sonic properties of these vegetables and the food items were. And surprisingly enough, potatoes have a beautiful high pass <laughs> filtering attenuation and bananas have a bell curve on the high frequencies, but hot dogs are pretty well flat on the EQ curve, but uh, <laughs> have a great attenuation. So, you know, 
this kind of stuff I think is maybe not just odd for women, but I think it's kind of weird for anybody, right? <laughs> that could be officially weird for anyone. Yes, I, I do think. <laughs> but what fun. Yeah. As long as you're having yeah. fun, that's, that's, that's totally true. Yeah. That's Let's all have hilarious. fun doing this. Well, exactly. Please. I mean, if we're not having fun, why are we bothering? Right. Why do we bother? <laughs> I love my favorite of your illustrations is this crazy studio with a million rooms and it's like the top's been cut off and we're looking in and there are all these people doing crazy things in all the different rooms. And then the middle room, there's this giant brontosaurus with a tattoo that says, I love analog. <laughs> I heart analog. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. that's the mix room, and you gotta you gotta think, you know, anybody who's really working on a big old console anymore is kind of a dinosaur. Yeah. I hate to say it, myself included, because I have a big console here in the, in my studio in Ashland, Oregon, and I love it. I work on it every day, but really, it's uh, the times are changing, and it's all going digital, and I have to just kind of just accept that, you know. We, we must evolve. <laughs> well, what's your feeling? Yeah. I mean, my feeling, and I know that I'm 105 years old, you know, I'm, I'm old, but <laughs> <laughs> I have this problem because I don't, you know, I don't really understand how technology, you know, basically what happened is we went from an analog world yeah. where people were making great sounds, yeah. which we've all heard for the last, you know, 60 years of recorded music. And now we're in this digital age where people are able to make sounds that are so clean yeah. and so perfect. Yeah. And now I feel like everybody's instantly sick of that and they want to try to find a way to dirty up that perfection of digital. And I keep going, why don't you just play instruments? <laughs> why don't you just go back to tape? <laughs> exactly. And I know that that's not the right way to think about this. Well, it might be, though, that you just have to go back to the way it originally was designed to to reappreciate what it is. I agree that everything is too clean and too perfect. Everything kind of sounds the same. Right. And it's a challenge to do something different now. Yeah. I remember when we put out the band Slater Kinney yes. in the 90s, they did not have a bass player, as I'm sure you know. And we were told that commercial radio wouldn't play a band without a bass player because they wanted the sounds to match. You know, they wanted everything that was coming out on the radio to have a similar sound, yeah, which is fascinating. And that's, you know, so if you think about radio today with only 12 slots or whatever they've got, uh, you know, no wonder everything that's on the radio sounds very similar. Right. Because it's not just the recording techniques. It's also, you know, what the demands of radio are. Well, you have to be competitive or that's the impression anyway. But it also seems that now more than ever that you can really do your own thing. And hopefully that's what you're in it for. You're not in music because you're trying to compete with selling records, but hopefully you're you're in it because you love the art of it and the expression of it. And whether that includes acoustic instruments or electric instruments or just noise and, you know, radio. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, right? Yeah. No, so, it's, it's true, right? Yeah. That's absolutely true. Well, in conclusion, I just want to touch on one more thing that you talk about in your book that I love. There's so many great stories in here of how various people have gotten great vocal performances out of singers. Yeah. That has to be one of the funnest chapters and just 
in general, one of the most fun things to think about because, like you say, there's a lot of people who come in to the studio and just basically freeze up. Yeah, it's a constant problem. Yeah, singers are delicate breeds. You know, they come in and this is their, they travel with their instrument. Their instrument is, their head is attached to their instrument. And unfortunately, that keeps them from always being able to operate their voice. (laughs) So the challenge for a producer or an engineer is, is to draw out the best performance and to get them out of their head. And there's a lot of techniques for doing that, but you really have to be creative and kind of put yourself in their shoes at the same time in order to really understand where they're coming from. And there's some great techniques. A couple people, for instance, Bob Ezrin, who recorded Alice Cooper and Pink Floyd. He had a story about recording Peter Gabriel, where Peter was not getting the performance and Bob was was threatening him, if you don't give me this performance in the next take, I'm going to tape you up against the wall. I'm going to just duct tape you on the wall. And Peter's laughing and he's, you know, not really trying very hard to give him a good performance. And so he was actually duct taped up onto the wall (laughs) and they put a mic up to him while he was taped to the wall. And that was the master take. And I can tell you exactly why it worked. Because while Peter Gabriel's dangling on the wall, he's not thinking about how he can't sing. Yeah. <laughs> he's thinking about falling off. You know? <laughs> when is so that duct tape going to come sudden, off? Right. Yeah. And, and the ridiculousness of the whole thing. So all of a sudden his mind is off of how, you know, how restricted his vocal cords are at that time. And he will give a great performance. So there's all kinds of tricks for for helping your singer to become comfortable or uncomfortable as I like to do sometimes for music, like hard music. If you want an aggressive, angry performance, you might have to get your singer pissed off. And that was one thing I did with Tool was to purposely antagonize Maynard so that he would scream and mean it, you know? (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, everyone, there's a little bit for everybody in this book. If you're a recording engineer or if you're a singer or if you're just a, a fan of music, I think that everyone would enjoy a little bit of this book. So check it out. <laughs> the book is Recording Unhinged. The author is producer engineer Sylvia Massey. Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What. It was a delight. All right, Portia. Thank you.
Latitudes for Centuries by Panther. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Tucker Martine. Joining me in the studio today is Tucker Martine, fantastic and world-renowned producer. <laughs> Tucker, welcome to The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. So great to have you here again. It's awesome to be here. Okay. I'll come anytime. So we wanted to get you in here to give us really the lowdown on what does a producer do? Well, it's a near impossible question to give a concise black and white answer to because the role changes with every project in my mind and in my experience. But I will say one thing that's consistent throughout is that a producer is a quality control mm. person. Like I feel like when I'm producing a record that it's on me first and foremost that the record be artistically successful by the artist's standards and by my standards. You know, that they're thrilled with what we make and that that I'm thrilled, but them first, really. Right. And that can mean a million things. It's sometimes, you know, they come to me and it seems like they've got all the right musicians already picked out and they've got this great batch of songs and they have a pretty clear idea of what they want it to sound like and we talk at length about that so that I'm I'm clear on that. And of course, I'll chime in with my own two bits and and we'll go back and forth. And in that case, you know, we have kind of a clear mission statement. And I feel like it's my job to help see that we stay on track for that and we accomplish something that resembles what we said we wanted to do in the first place. Other times, somebody might have a bunch of great songs, but they just have no idea what to do with them. And they don't know, maybe they don't really have many friends that play music or they do but they don't feel like they're the right musicians so they need help finding people but they also need help figuring out what kind of musicians it should be what instruments and what sensibilities should the musicians have and how should we record it should we should everyone be in the same room together just bashing it out or does it make more sense to spend time really just focusing on getting the songwriters parts down and then bringing people in and constructing something there are so many different ways that you can help make sure the record is good. And then, of course, there's the other added aspect, which is that pretty much everyone who walks in, I would imagine, for the most part, is working on a time constraint and a budget. Absolutely. So you can't, it's, it's probably, you've probably had a few experiences where people walk in and they're like, money is no limit. I can be here forever. <laughs> but probably not that many. Yeah, well, they never say that in the beginning, but then <laughs> after the time's up and they're still talking about like, you know, what sounds like another month or so of work, you're like, I thought you were on a budget. <laughs> but yeah, that's a huge one. I mean, that's one of the many variables you have to figure out in the beginning. And you need to figure out, okay, well, here are our list of goals and here are our real world constraints. Maybe we can't have all those people involved in the record that you listed, but we can have some of them, which are the most important. I know realistically how much time it can take to do things. And it's usually a little more time if you're going to hold the bar high. Mm -hmm. It's usually going to take a little more time than the artist thinks. So you just want to plan so that you don't get halfway in and figure out that there's no way you can pull off what you thought. So find the right corners to cut that don't actually affect the quality, just maybe change the target right. slightly. So it sounds like, I mean, to me, it sounds like the most interesting thing about being a producer is that every single new job you get is a completely new adventure. 
Yeah. You know, it's like you bring your skill set to it, you bring your knowledge and experience, but basically it's like new band, they're going to make a new record, you got this much time, it's either, you know, it's a week, it's a month, Yeah, you got this much money. And they all have different ideas of what the process is like or what they're expecting it to be like or what they want a producer to do or not do, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes people look to me at every single turn, you know, like help me pick which songs to do and help me pick the musicians and everything. And then I'm going to leave you alone for mix because it stresses me out. <laughs> and then there's, there's the opposite extreme of somebody that, you know, asks you to produce the record, but basically wants to micromanage every step of the way. Both of those extremes are fairly uncommon, but it's somewhere on that spectrum. Right. And it's everywhere everybody. on that spectrum. Yeah. So yeah, does that, yeah. Does that kind of answer the, Definitely. the question? I mean, I will say for me, I enjoy having some degree of creative freedom and signing on for projects where it's definitely a creative outlet as well as kind of a project managerial (laughs) role, you know, which which is important. Like, I kind of feel like if we run out of money and the record's not done, like, that's on me. You know, at a certain point, if if, as long as the artist hasn't completely changed the goal, like halfway through. Has that ever happened to you where the artist changes the goal halfway through? Yeah. And then I just say, you know, we can do that, but it, this is what it means. It means it's going to cost more money and it's going to take more time. And maybe I don't have the time right away because I have other commitments. So if you're okay with we pick this up again in six months or something, then then we can do it. Right. Usually then they want to just get it done now yeah. instead. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to drag it out forever. Right. So I would ask you, what's your favorite type of band to work with? But I don't know if that's really a, a legit question because it seems like every project is so different. You know, it's like you've probably had bands who come in who are completely green. They've never been in a recording studio before and they've got like six days to make a record yeah. and just bash it out. And I could see that could be so fun. Yeah. But then you have like REM come in. Yeah. And I can imagine that's a completely different experience. You know, for me, and I, I think a lot of artists are this way. You can chime in on that if you want, but I've, I feel like I'm often reacting against what I've just done. So if I just did a record that took a really long time, occasionally I've done records that take three months or even four months or something. The next thing I want to do, I want to do something really fast. Like you don't even have a chance to overthink it or to hardly think about it at all because you have to go so fast. And if the band is equipped to do that, that's a really fun way to make a record. But often after I do a few of those, I'm kind of yearning to do something where we can have a chance to step back and say, hey, what if we did this instead? Or, you know, kind of we're able to be more thoughtful about arrangements. Right. I had the luck to be involved in a recording project for the Gossips album, Standing in the Wave Control. And we recorded that over two weeks at Bear Creek Studios. And Ryan Hadlock, who's the engineer and producer at, at Bear Creek, we also brought in Guy Pachotto from Fugazi to do additional production work. Oh, yeah. And I mean, so it was Ryan and Guy the whole time. And I remember the thing that impressed me the most about that whole experience was how patient Guy was. And how he just always would make every new take, like, kind of an adventure. Like, that was really great. And I liked it. And I think it might be the one. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what if we did it this other way? And I remember he one night got Beth in the vocal booth all by herself at, like, midnight to sing this really, really sad, like, soulful track. And it made all the difference. It was like, she didn't want to do it in front of the 
She was feeling emotional about it. You know, it was this whole thing. And he just figured out exactly how to get the very best performance out of her just by working with her. And I mean, they never had met before. Right. That's the incredible it's thing about A lot about of trust producers. involved if it's going to be a successful collaboration. I yeah. Think. You hit on an important thing in talking about patience, I think. And one of the big challenges of producing is that I constantly need to tell, you know, I'm constantly needing to find ways to tell an artist that maybe they can do it better. You know, they're in the room, they're just like pouring their soul into it, giving it their all. And, you know, oftentimes you need to tell them that we don't quite have it yet, but you need to do it while still boosting their confidence. So you you have to say, you're not quite getting it yet. You're amazing at the same time <laughs> the and same have time. them and, and not sound like you're full of shit, you know, <laughs> and, and not have them look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. Because... Because it's true, you know, it's like you have a sense of what they're capable of and they haven't quite gotten there yet. When the person in the room singing or playing or whatever it is, you don't always have total perspective if you've nailed something. And sometimes you do, for sure, but not always, which is the reason the role of producer even exists. Mm -hmm. Because if all artists had full objectivity and vision all the time, they wouldn't need that. person there to be a sounding board. So, yeah, it sounds like he really understood that. It was impressive. I was I was just so blown away by that. Have you had any situations that you could recount from your own experience where it's just like you tried something completely different with a part that wasn't quite working or I don't know if something super specific comes to mind other than I I have a philosophy that we should never be afraid to try anything. And you should also never be afraid to just acknowledge that something's not working and move on. And I feel like if you have both of those convictions, then you can't lose. You're going to be fine. You know, having this kind of fear in the process of whether it's me being afraid of an artist's idea that I don't quite understand or them being afraid of an idea I have, it's just like a, it just blocks the whole flow of the thing. Because why not, you know, why not just try it and if we both look at each other like, hell yeah, that's cool. That's really working. Then great. And if if we don't, then we just won't use it. There's no harm. I mean, assuming you can try an idea in a reasonable amount of time. Right. But I've been in situations where people are afraid to try something that they don't know exactly what the result is going to be. And that process just can get stale pretty quickly. And mm. usually, in my opinion, the record is a little bit less inspired. The, resu- the end result. Right. And that, and that goes both ways, too, because I've found myself in situations where I'm resisting something. And I know pretty well these days that if they have an idea that doesn't make quite make sense to me, I should just try it. Because honestly, about half the time, it ends up really cool. Mm-hmm. And I learned something from it. So Yeah, learning something. And that's because, I mean, everybody comes in with different experience and has tricks and tips and things that maybe people don't know about. So it's good to like, I think that whole creative process of coming together is amazing. Yeah. I was just, I'd mentioned REM and I I think of them because when they came to your studio, they'd been a band for a billion years, you know, and they've put out so right. many records. And that's such a different, I mean, in terms of like producer authority, that's such a different sensation than some kids, some 19 year old kids walking into your studio who've never done it before. It's like, you've done it hundreds of times. Oh man. Did that feel different Not for you? to mention that I, I mean, I I grew up listening to and loving like, right. those early R.M. <laughs> records. That must have been kind of a trip. Yeah, it was. But I was kind of, I was a little bit off the hook in that those sessions were 
basically meant to be demo sessions. But hey, if we get something, then it's not a demo, mm-hmm. which is, should always be the case, you right. know. So that it kind of took the pressure off, and it it wasn't really the kind of environment where we were, you know, there'd be a take and we're looking at each other going, okay, is this the definitive one? Right. It's like, hey, yeah, that's got spirit. Like, we definitely caught a vibe and we've got 12 more songs to knock out. So let's let's do the next one. <laughs> and some of that stuff did end up on the record. But the bulk of that, of the recording process for that album was with Garrett Lee, I believe is his name, who produced the last few R.E.M. records. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of lucky to sneak in there in this little window where they were, you know, needed to try some new songs out really quickly, and and there, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any favorite projects where the ones that you look back on, and you're just like so proud. You're like, this just went so great. Oh man! Not I, that all of your projects haven't been. No, I know. Excellent. I know. I sound like a politician or something, but I, I, I really always look to get something, something out of all of them, and it's not always the same thing. Uh-huh. I mean, sometimes I don't necessarily end up loving a record, but I feel like that really helped, you know? Like, yeah. maybe I realize in the end that I don't just love the songs. But in the in the process, like, whatever I'm working on, it's my all-time favorite thing. Like, mm-hmm. in that moment, you right. know, I kind of sometimes think of it almost like it's like parenting. Like, when you're with <laughs> that, in that moment, with that with that person like they're the most important thing in the world like they need you right then to do everything you can to help them so we should we should rename this episode <laughs> what is a producer a producer is like a parent and once you have a child you will understand <laughs> you know there might be more parallels than than i previously had, had thought about see and now we can go in a whole different direction i can be like you were a producer before you were a parent and now after you are a parent like yeah how did your perspective change <laughs> They both they both can be like herding cats. Oh my sometimes. god! Yeah, no doubt. I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, sorry. Favorite one or something? It's or just it's, something that sticks out in your mind as like a real success. Like we we're having trouble with this part. We just did something different, and it totally worked out. You know the the first my morning jacket record I got to work on comes to mind. The record's called Circuital, and we recorded it in a church in Louisville and everybody was just set up in this one enormous reverberant room. And I was nervous at first that, you know, with a a band that can be a loud rock band, that it was just an impossible environment in which to make a record because not only could you never have any separation between the instruments, I couldn't really even monitor what we're recording in a reasonable way to know what was happening. But then when we did the mixing, we went to a quote-unquote proper studio where we really could tell what we had. And it turned out that, you know, the frustrations of making that record ended up being my favorite parts. Cool. Because the it, it created so many limitations the way that we made the record. We couldn't, you know, it was just sort of the antithesis of, of what the tools these days allow you to do, which is make everything perfect and do everything, keep everything separate and, and make all your real aesthetic decisions later about how you want to treat the instruments and stuff. And our hands were just tied. Once we got a take, everyone's part was bleeding into everyone else's part. And it made the record all about the band playing together. There was no way to not make it about that, even if we got tempted to. And just gave it a sonic identity 
to be in this unusual space and to have the space be such a big part of the process. That was just really cool as we were mixing it. And once I let go of my, you know, kind of usual mindset of like being able to control each thing, which is, by the way, not always a good impulse, but it, but it happens when it's, <laughs> when it's what you're doing day to day. Yeah, it just ended up becoming this beautiful thing because of the limitations. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. So last question I want to ask you is how you got into production, because having read some stuff and talked to you about this before, I know that you see yourself really as an artist. I mean, you approach the studio as an instrument, not just like, you're not just a tech dude. Right. Well, it's true. I mean, I see myself as an artist, I guess, in that I got into recording by just having a, a curiosity for like the way that the recorded medium could influence like making compositions like you know manipulating tape speed and tape direction and tape loops and you know listening to those kind of like early ambient records the Brian Eno things or even Krautrock or Music Concrete like things that were made in a studio and only could have, like compositions that only existed because of recording technology mm -hmm. and particularly like analog recording technology at the time. And so it was kind of ex through exploring those things and being fascinated by that, that I kind of ended up learning a bit about recording and it kind of naturally led to recording friends or people I was playing with. Cause you know, I did, I grew up, my father's a songwriter so there's sort of that component in the back of my mind, make songs, even when I was just spending months just listening to people scraping rocks <laughs> on paper clips, slowed down 30 times or whatever. Like I still was someone who loved songs and loved like playing drums in a rock band or whatever. So, you know, to keep my answer from being too long, it was, it was the process of kind of reconciling those interests mm -hmm. and it was it was an epiphany for me when I realized like, oh, I think that's what record production is. I think that's kind of, the producer does all those different things. And then I thought, maybe everything's going to be okay. Maybe I'm not just a freaking weirdo who likes all these things that don't relate or whatever, you know. Uh, maybe I'll kind of look more into that. And yeah, and the more I looked into it, the more I was like, this is totally what I'm, what I want to do. And like, there's a name for it. So and That's a perfect way to wrap up what, what is a producer? Great. Yeah, I love it. Well, Tucker Martin, thank you so much for coming on The Future of Watch. Thank you. It's always fun. Yeah.
was When We Swam by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. And now we're going to talk to Caravan Palace, a band who is nominated for both the Shifting Beats Award and the Video of the Year Award at this year's A2IM Libera Awards, which will be held in New York City in June. Hugo Payen is the violinist and vocalist for the French band Caravan Palace, and he joins me now. Hugo, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you for welcoming me. So, today we are talking to you because your band has been nominated for two Libera Awards. Exactly. It's, uh, it's an honor for us. We didn't expect this. Well, I'm very excited. It's two different categories. The first is a new category for the awards the Shifting Beats Award, and that is for electronic and dance music. And your music is often called electro swing. Yes, that's what people uh, say about our music. And we, we told that too, because we tried to mix that two different musics that are the swing and the electronic music. And you guys have been a band since 2008, correct? Yes, maybe, maybe one year uh, sooner. Oh. Yeah, it's already 10 years. Already? Wow. That's amazing. And you have your most recent record is actually Symbol on the cover, but you call it, do you call it Robot or Robot Face? As you prefer. Either <laughs> we, one. We, yes, we chose uh, that the public uh, had uh, something to say about that and we, we, we chose uh, to let him choose the name. Wow, that was very nice of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a risk. <laughs> yeah. I know when I read the awards categories for the Libby Awards, and when I got to your album title, I I just stopped and said, "Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> what's this? <laughs> How do I say this?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, our label, our disc label, was okay with that, and uh, I think it was risky, but a lot of people talk about that, so it was quite a good idea. And the album is doing well, obviously. Yes, until now, yes, it's very good. The critics are very good, and the public loves it. Yeah. I think your music is quite interesting. It's very different. I like it that you're in a category for shifting beats with bands like Grimes and Odessa. Yeah, and Pitches, too. <laughs> that are more classically, sort of classically electronic. Exactly. So it's exciting and refreshing that to have you guys in there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the other award that you are up for is Video of the Year for your Lone Digger song. Yeah, exactly. The second uh, video clip we did for the album, and until now the best. Well, it's gotten over 10 million views on YouTube, so I think that's pretty successful. Yeah, it's our first video clip who reached that amount of views, and we are very surprised because it's special, a bit violent and sexy, and uh, we didn't, we are not used to that kind of things, and our public is not used to. So, but it was also a risk, and it uh, it worked. So how did you hook up with Laurent from Le Plan Records? He was a friend of our manager, Olivier Langlais. And when we were looking for uh, some labels in the um, United States for that album, he naturally uh, thought about, on, of him. And he was very interested in the project and uh, very excited too. So it was uh, quite natural for us to, to work with him because he was uh, very ambitious and he, he, he felt something different in that album. And uh, yes, it was quite exciting. And he's done a very good job, I think, bringing you to the U.S. Do you think any of your band members will be able to make it to America for the Libby Awards this summer? I think it will be difficult because we are on tour. 
you you're asking me for the for the ceremony. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we will be on tour uh, in the United States, but uh-huh. uh, we we tried to make it. But we we saw that we were at the exact opposite of the United States as you. Oh no! <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it was uh, difficult for us to take the plane and and be back uh, for the concert the next day. Uh, so we are very very sad about it, but we couldn't make it. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us, and good luck on the Libby Awards. Thank you very much. We hope it will work. Cross finger. Hugo Payan is the violinist for Caravan Palace. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Drop the Phone by Shy Child. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. 
You heard Panther, Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down, Shy Child, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. Can I interfere in your ice cream? No, can I lift the crumbs from your table? No, can Choose.